This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From ABC7 New York, this is Eyewitness News Extra Time. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. I'm Bill Ritter. There's some new developments tonight in that brutal assault of two New York cops in Times Square this past weekend. So far, seven people have been arrested. Cops are looking for five others. Most of those arrested are migrants. Investigators believe some of them may have already skipped town after being released without bail. This case has made national headlines. As Eyewitness News reporter Anthony Carlo shows us, advocates for immigrants now worry this case will hurt their efforts to help other migrants who need help. The NYPD continuing its fierce manhunt for the attackers, many of them migrants, who beat up a lieutenant and an officer Saturday night. Important the mayor's chief of staff today was, with no room for mercy, calling it an abomination. I mean, if convicted, yeah, I think they should be deported. We're not going to tolerate individuals attacking our police officers. That's not going to happen. Police canvassed migrant facilities across the city last night. <laughs> Our Josh Einiger got an exclusive look not only at the manhunt, but the confiscation of unregistered bikes and scooters. I think that we have to really highlight that these are isolated incidents. Today, growing concern from the New York Immigration Coalition that a few bad apples will put a target on the greater asylum-seeking population. It feeds into kind of the belief system that these people are coming and they're they're messing up things when it's not really the case. Very often they are very, very afraid of crime, right? Because they know that crime is a one-way ticket to deportation. Though that's apparently the looming consequence for the accused cop beaters, police have reason to believe four of them initially arrested may have already skipped town on a bus headed to the West Coast. These individuals should not have been released, right? And so the circumstances under which that happened are clearly out of our control. The mayor's office taking a hard stance on the controversial request for no bail for some of the defendants made by the blatantly progressive Manhattan DA and honored by the court, but stopping short of any broad concern about simmering tensions between cops and migrants. Same way that we would expect the NYPD to be courteous to our traditional New Yorkers, we would expect them to be to do what they're already doing, which is to be respectful and courteous with the asylum seekers. Now, of course, there's always concern that hateful rhetoric will be spewed at asylum seekers who had nothing to do with this attack on police. The mayor's chief of staff maintains this city welcomes asylum seekers, but also says sanctuary city laws do not prohibit the city from working with federal immigration authorities if they engage the city with warrants for those who committed this heinous attack. In Midtown, Anthony Carlo, Channel 7, Eyewitness News. Well, during Anthony's story, we just got a note from our assignment desk. 14 separate suspects have now been identified in the assault of those two cops. That's one reason why it has become national news. Meanwhile, more than 172 migrants have arrived and gone through the New York City's intake system since the spring of 2022. To help with the surge, the city's opening a complex on Randall's Island, including a series of tents for sleeping, dining and bathroom facilities. It sits on sports fields at the island's southernmost tip. And as Eyewitness News reporter Lucy Yang shows us, 
conditions there can be harsh. On any given night, some 3,000 migrants sleep in rows of cots inside huge heated tents set up on an island park with sweeping views of the Manhattan skyline. But as the city struggles to house the influx of immigrants, there simply is not enough space in the sprawling complex on Randall's Island that is now New York City's largest shelter for asylum seekers. So... Outside the camp's gates, a handful of people pitch their own tents in the bitter dead of winter. Many have used up their allowed time in the city's official shelter system and have not been able to get another placement or secure their own place. Nearby, entrepreneurial migrants set up a makeshift marketplace at the shelter's entrance. There, they hawk everything from homemade coffee to cigarettes, sneakers and jeans. Cooking is banned in city shelters, so some prepare meals in a nearby public restroom, slicing raw meat in the men's room, on the sink, next to the urinals and toilet stalls. Inside the city-run shelter complex, residents say life is not much better. Earlier this month, a 24-year-old Venezuelan man there was stabbed and killed. It marked the first murder in a city-run migrant shelter since the latest surge of migrants illegally entering the country began in 2022. Then last week, a brawl at a dining room ended with another young man hospitalized with stab wounds. Dozens more arrested. Marilis Rivas, a 36-year-old from Venezuela, has been at the shelter for more than a month. She says there is simply not enough security to maintain order in this shelter comprised largely of single men. I would say that there's a lack of security inside the shelter and outside. The shelter is very open, very open in the way that things enter, things leave, and they don't check. Despite the city's decade-old right-to-shelter law, a uniquely New York policy obligating officials to provide emergency shelter to anyone who asks, immigrant advocates say as many as 100 people wait for a shelter bed on any given night. The average wait time for a bed lasts more than a week. In the meantime, an increasing number of migrants are choosing alternate accommodations. Robert Medina is a migrant from Mexico. He set up a grilled chicken and hot chocolate stand outside the Randall's Island shelter. He says when his 30 shelter days ran out, he pivoted to sleeping in the subway. We don't have anywhere to live. There's no work or anything. The Coalition for the Homeless says the city deliberately made life at Randall's Island and other migrant shelters as untenable as possible to discourage people from staying. That's allowed small frustrations to fester until eventually boiling over. It's insanity for the U.S. government to welcome people from other countries into the United States and say, come in, but by the way, you can't work. Well, what are they supposed to do? People have to eat. People have to survive. Lucy Yang, Channel 7 Eyewitness News. It is all so complicated. All right, we pivot now, and uh, maybe you saw the sun a little bit. Lee, I did today, just a little bit. Yeah, just a sign of things to come over the weekend. Half step forward, then we take a step back tomorrow, and then we're in gear as we go into the weekend. But there'll be a bit of rain coming in in a few hours, along with a little wet snow well north and west. Figure after 10 or 11 o'clock tonight. But no shadows for the groundhogs, but we do have our scorecard ready to go. Everyone from Punxsutawney Phil to Staten Island Chuck, Malvern Mel, Holtzville Hal, and Essex County Edwina. Did you know that one, too? So we'll see what they say. I can't imagine they see the shadows tomorrow. A lot of clouds.
clouds around. This is what it'll look like over the weekend. We'll bypass tomorrow's ugly forecast and get you to a sunny forecast over the weekend. Low and middle 40s, lots of sunshine. Saturday is the chillier day. There's more wind. It's calmer and a little milder in the afternoon hours on Sunday. Grand Central Parkway, slow and steady under a mainly cloudy sky. Dry roadways for now. We're at 45. Southwest breeze at about 6. So tomorrow, we've got some showers around. They're steadiest through the, let's say, mid-morning hours. After that, a spot shower in the afternoon. Sun's coming back for the weekend and high temperatures in the 40s. We have a shot at a prolonged stretch of sunshine that should take us deep into next week, along with a warming trend by this time next week. A lot of clouds around. You can see a front off to the north. Doesn't look particularly strong, but it has just enough strength to bring in dry air from Hudson Bay. And there's some last-minute jet stream energy that's working into the front, which should enhance the rainfall after about 11 o'clock tonight. Now, it looks like that happens too late for the Hudson Valley. So our precipitation values, which aren't going to be high anyway, are going to be a little higher from uh, south of I-80 in New Jersey, New York City, Long Island, and central and southern New Jersey, basically. And you can see how that rain expands during the overnight hours. Maybe there's a couple of tenths of an inch of rainfall, especially to the south. There will be rain and snow showers into tomorrow morning for the commute off to the north and west. Maybe even a slick spot or two where temperatures are so close to freezing. A spot shower the rest of the day, best case scenario, a late day break, and we catch a glimpse of the sunset before we really clear out during the nighttime hours tomorrow night. Just be aware that as we clear out, we've got a cold north wind kicking in. So it's blustery and chilly tomorrow night. Wind chills on Saturday morning are probably in the teens and 20s. It's a bright sunny day on Saturday. The only thing we're watching for that could be a little bit of a spoiler with this sunny stretch is there's a storm over the North Atlantic and it is throwing some clouds back to the west. So at times I'm a little concerned that we get clouds mixing in along the immediate coastline, Connecticut, Long Island, Jersey Shore, and that's really through the weekend and into early next week. Rainfall totals could be as little as a few hundredths north to a third of an inch off to the south, a tenth of an inch or two in New York City. Gusty winds by tomorrow afternoon. They stay busy tomorrow night and into the day on Saturday. So it's kind of blustery, but at least you got the sunshine out there. But that 42 on Saturday will probably feel like 30s much of the day. In fact, the wind chills to start the day, only teens and 20s. 40 tonight, cloudy skies. Rain comes in late evening on. Some wet snowflakes can mix in off to the north and west light winds. 44 tomorrow. It's a raw day. Early rain and snow. Spotty showers from midday on. And a chilly afternoon wind that could provide us with a late day break. It's cold tomorrow night. 30 degrees. Finally some clearing, but feels like 20s. Here's your 7 day. And you get past Friday and look at that sunny stretch. Now it's brisk on Saturday. Calmer and milder in the afternoon on Sunday. Have to watch out to see if clouds are east of the city Monday and Tuesday. But we're forecasting mostly sunny skies for now. A little chilly Tuesday, and Bill, by this time next week, we should be around 50 degrees. And I think through probably the 11th or 12th of the month, we're going to be normal to above normal. Then winter may try to snap back. We'll see you again at 11 o'clock. We won't let it snap back. <laughs> All right, thank you, Lee. Yep. As we continue with Abba Zoo's Extra Time, the so-called pandemic skip has left many of us kind of lost and confused. We're going to take a deeper dive into how it's impacting teenagers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Extra Time. The coronavirus pandemic resulted in a lot of loss in so many ways. And to this day, people may be losing out because of it. Still, a mental health phenomenon dubbed the pandemic skip has now caught viral attention on social media. It's 
It's the sense someone's mental age is younger than their chronological age because of missing important life experiences. Young adults in particular may be feeling this impact. Every year is critical, of course, for a teenager's development. But with three years disrupted by the pandemic, there are concerns that their mental development is now three years behind. So is that possible? What does it mean? How do you prevent it? How do you deal with it? Joining us now with more to deal with this is John Paul Simon. He's director of clinical interventions in schools for Care Plus New Jersey. And John Paul, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming because I think this is really heavy. I think it's really important. I think a lot of us don't understand what's happening to some of our kids. And so maybe we can help those people. Basically, uh, just for lay people out there, because I'm one, uh, what's a pandemic skip? Absolutely. So imagine yourself falling asleep or finding yourself in a coma for now nearly three years. All of a sudden you wake up, the timeline has continued, things have continued, and that expectation of you're supposed to be caught up, you're supposed to be at a specific developmental age, a specific social age, and you're just far behind. Right Now multiply that and think about as many adolescents in our communities experiencing that I'm waking up feeling like I've missed three years. Well, I, I know this, my, my daughter's now 14 and, and she was alone uh, like a lot of kids are and she dealt with this a little bit and too much time on the computer. and you know, you couldn't see friends either. And they were out of school. It's all quite disturbing. And we adults, of course, had effects of all that as well. But how do children experience it uh, much, much differently uh, and much worse in a lot of ways? Sure. Just thinking about developmental timelines, uh, adolescents, specifically at the age yeah. uh, between 13 to 17, but also early childhood development too. This is when your brain begins forming. Um, at the beginning of adolescence, there's this expectation that puberty is hitting. So there's these natural barriers that exist as you're on this life journey as a youth, throw in a global pandemic, throw in a loss of connection, and throw in expectations being turned upside down. The idea of how am I supposed to think about learning math, learning geometry, when I'm worried that I may possibly contract uh, a, a virus that may kill me. And those expectations of a preteen. When I was that age, and, and you know, it might be different for the kiddos out there now, it's, I was concerned about video games. I was concerned about playing baseball out in the street yeah. and hanging out until mom called. Things got rocked. Yeah. And, and the idea of, you know, the, the social media piece, the tech piece, you lose a lot of developmental cues. And there's great things about social media. There's great things about the phone. Right. Um, but what I believe the work industry calls it, you lose soft skills. You forget how to speak to people on a surface level. All right, you've presented the problem very well, and I appreciate it, keeping it simple for people like me. But what is the solution going forward? Because they have their whole future still ahead of them. Absolutely. I think uh, being able to look at it from a multifaceted approach. Number one, when it comes to that specific child, uh, whether it's your daughter, whether it's anyone's kid, entering high school or wherever they are, 
number one, them receiving that message, we all sort of felt behind. We all sort of faced this pandemic together. And we acknowledged the fact that we're in a bit of a handicap. But then what makes this country wonderful, the systems in place, such as the academic institution, the family institution, the community across America where we all reside in, putting specific programming that really enhances things like social emotional learning. That idea of, yes, we're gonna catch up, make sure you get a 3.9, you make sure you pass all your exams, but we wanna place emphasis on being able to, how to make friends again. What's the appropriate way to resolve a conflict? Intentionally placing that as an objective for our youth. So many parents are listening to you and there's no sounds of silence here, John Paul Simon. I really appreciate you telling people what is ahead and how we can deal with it. Thank you so much, uh, John. You're, John Paul, you're from Care Plus New Jersey and we really appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank you. All right, peace be with you. As we continue with Iowa News Extra Time, the wealthiest person on earth takes the next step toward a commercial brain interface. We'll tell you what that even means and what happens next, next. Elon Musk says his ambitious plan to let humans wirelessly connect their brains with phones and other devices has taken a new step. The billionaire posted at social media that the first human has received a brain implant from his Neuralink company. The radical technology, still years from researching consumers, of course, but experts are already concerned what it could mean for the future. Joining us now with more is Ivan Rodriguez. Ivan? Bill Musk's announcement really marks a milestone for Neuralink's efforts to provide potentially life-transforming technology from the lab and into the real world. Now, still, there are a few details uh, missing on just how much of a scientific advancement this implant could be. Imagine the joy of connecting with your loved ones, browsing the web, or even playing games using only your thoughts. Elon Musk's Neuralink is joining a list of companies working on implants with the potential to improve lives and fundamentally change the way we interact with technology. You can operate a computer or a smartphone by simply thinking about moving. No wires or physical movement are required. Researchers say a brain-computer interface will allow a person to use their thoughts to control a device like a computer or a phone. If you can get a device that can detect and uh, interact with brain activity, which is all electrical signals, then you can potentially restore that component of the brain. If the technology works, it could one day have a wide range of health benefits. I think this is a case where we definitely want to improve the longevity and the lifespans and the health of everyday people, especially those who have mobility needs. Experts say we're still years away from the device reaching consumers, but as Congress continues to grapple with how to regulate tech companies in a rapidly changing world, these implants are raising concerns around privacy and transparency. We need strategic foresight here to think through what this all might look like in the future. In May of last year, Neuralink received FDA clearance for human clinical trials. And a couple months after that, they began recruiting patients with diseases like ALS, for example. Now, academics say that they've been researching this specific topic for decades now, and you can really see just how far they've come along until now. 
Live in Atlanta, I'm Ivan Rodriguez. All right, CNN's Ivan Rodriguez. Ivan, thank you so much for that. It's really interesting. We'll see what happens. As we continue with Iowa News Extra Time, you may not know his name, but you certainly know the photographs he helped to put into the national conscience over a period of years. Tonight, we remember Howell Buell. Next. Finally tonight, we want to honor the legacy of an iconic photojournalist. His name is Hal Buell. He led the Associated Press photo operations from the darkroom era right into the age of digital photography. A four-decade career with a news organization that included 12 Pulitzer Prizes and some of the defining images of so many things, including the Vietnam War. Buell died Monday in Sunnyvale, California, after battling pneumonia. He was 92, and what a life he lead. Joining us with more is Richard Drew, an Associated Press photographer for 53 years. He was hired by Hal. And Richard, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me tonight. So I, I'm yeah, I, good. I, I'm guessing yeah, real quickly. Ahead. I'm really you I'm guessing ahead. very quickly that that this is an honor for you to be here because this is your friend, your mentor, and and you have it deep inside you. Well, he, he hired this young photographer who worked for the Pasadena Star News, and he and I was hired sight unseen wow. by him, but recommended by the L.A. photo editor for the opening of the San Francisco Bureau uh, in 1970. Wow. And uh, I moved to New York in 1973, and it, the rest of, they say the rest is history. Right. Hal was quite the guy. He, oh. was, uh, he, he, he really transformed the AP uh, from uh, black and white film to color film and then to digital photography. And we see so much. Uh, I, I, are you seeing what we're seeing, what the viewers are seeing? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, look at that. Film. It's from everywhere around the world. And, and then mm -hmm. that's when Ronald Reagan was shot. Um, out in Washington, and then you have this this kind of stuff. So he it really broadened the base of what what AP was trying to do. It seems to me. I was uh, I, I was fortunate to be one of the in one of the winners of one of the twelve Pulitzers uh, for the, of our campaign coverage of 1992. Uh, we we. Uh, several of our photographers we uh, we we shared the 1993 Pulitzer Prize for uh, feature photography. Wow. That's amazing. He, now, he really did. You can see it from the like where, where Mr. Well, Reagan, Reagan yeah. is right there, the assassination attempt against him. Yeah. Um, he, he's not the one shooting a lot of this stuff, but he supervised the yeah. staff, right, that won all these Pulitzers. He, he really was the guy who pushed to get the photo of uh, Kim Fook, uh, mm. with a photo by Nick Utt, who is, the picture became known as uh, Napalm Girl. Uh, of the uh, it was really one of the defining uh, photos of the Vietnam War of the young girl who had been caught. There it is, right there. there, it caught, is right uh, there. Yeah, had her clothes burned off in a napalm attack. She's still alive. She lives in uh, Canada. Yep. And uh, I see uh, photos of the he and she and Nick together. Sometimes they're uh, they're still very good friends, and uh, it's really something. She had. He also took pictures of other things in in Vietnam. There was that one who was a guy who was going to kill himself. I'm looking, trying to look at right here. He not kill himself. He was being killed, right? We can't see it, but the one where you see the guy just putting his the bullet to his head. If we can see that or not. Uh, uh, you're a very small image where I, where I can see you. I'm sorry, I can't okay, see. Okay, right I'm now. sorry about that. But it, it was no, no. it was brought and and Vietnam was a, a really a turning point in in the history of, of photography for news photography. I think it's really something uh, through the years. Uh, and 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 the Pulitzers, we you you showed another picture. I don't know if you had it up there before of uh, uh, by Eddie Adams uh, during the Vietnam War of the uh, 
police chief of uh, Saigon uh, shooting the uh, shooting the person in the head. That was also a very defining moment of uh, of the Vietnam War, as well as uh, we have the other picture. There it is. There it is. Yeah, look at that. Yes. And it was just, and, it was frightening, and it, it it helped change the attitudes about the war in this country. There's no question about that. In uh, 1994, uh, Hal really was the guy who transformed digital photography when he had uh, partnered with, with wow. the AP partnered with uh, Kodak, and we built the uh, it was called the NC2000 or News Camera 2000, and it was a. Uh, uh, the chip in the camera was very small. It was only like I think 1.4 megapixels versus what you carry on your hip today in your uh, in your in your in your mobile phone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we used to have to take a, a dark room uh, wherever we went on a job, and we'd have to go back and process the film in the bathroom or whatever. And Richard, then, it, you, yes, sir. I'm sorry. I, I, I want to thank you. We're running out of time. I, I want to thank you, Richard Drew, yeah. photographer with AP, uh, and thank you for joining us and, and giving a history lesson to all of us about Mr. Hugh. You're welcome, Bill. Right. Thank you for having me tonight. Thank you very much. And that wraps up this edition of Extra Time. Thank you for joining us. I'm Bill Ritter. And a quick reminder, Extra Time is now a podcast. Yep, we're there. You can listen to the show as well as past shows on the go. Search Extra Time on whatever platform you get your podcasts. We're back on Eyewitness News tonight at 11 o'clock on Channel 7. Hope to see you then. Until then, have a safe and great evening.